Welcome back to another very special episode of The Spirit of Haggard. I'm your host, Jody Lynch Findlay, and I am truly honored to share today's conversation. In this episode, we feature a guest near and close to the heart of the Haggard family. Before his passing, we had the honor of sitting down with Dr. Walter Zent to discuss his achievements throughout his career as an equine reproduction veterinarian. July of 2023 marked the 57th anniversary that Dr. Zent was a cherished member of the Haggard family. Throughout his time at the practice, his work in equine reproduction was an integral part in the development of the McGee Fertility Center, while his mentorships shaped many equine veterinarians into the practitioners we know today. He served as president of the Society for Theriogenology, chair of the board of directors for Gluck Equine Research Foundation, was an avid member of the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Symposium on Equine Reproduction. Joining us in this special episode is Dr. Luke Haggard Fallon, equine field veterinarian and fifth generation veterinarian of the Haggard family, as well as our own Dr. Christina Liu, equine theriogenologist and former mentee of Dr. Zent. I would love Dr. Fallon for you to maybe get us started. I think that perhaps a great place to start uh, as an intro is to introduce Dr. Ed Fallon perhaps, and talk a little bit about the beginning of this story from your perspective. Well, so my father, Ed Fallon, and Dr. Zent, Walter Zent, um, started working together in approximately what had been about 1963. Well, that's when I I graduated from veterinary school, but it it was later than that. It was five. 65? Yeah. Where were you from originally? A little town called East Aurora, which is in western New York, about 20 miles from Niagara Falls. Okay. And you are one that came to central Kentucky and never left. That's right. Was that your plan from the beginning? Well, Well, I didn't think there was much of a chance of being there to do that. Um, and I was glad when I had the opportunity. I think that it's also very interesting, Dr. Fallon, that your dad went to Cornell and then Dr. Zent and you. So the three of you, it's kind of a full circle mentorship is really, you know, I think what today's conversation has showed off. Um, but that all three of you attended vet school at Cornell. Yeah, well, and Walter mentored me. But Dr. Zent was working at the Animal Science Department. The Veterinary Science Department at UK. And uh, my uncle Jack Bryans was at that time the head of the Animal Science Department or Veterinary Science Department. His brother-in-law, my father, Ed Fallon, was an ambulatory veterinarian with Haggards. Dr. Zent would come and ride and work with my father on weekends, I believe, if the story is correct. Yeah. And 
four o'clock in the morning. Four in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonder you ever came back. <laughs> they spent many good days together uh, working on, you know, the, the farms around central Kentucky. And as the story I was told was one day you're sitting in the garage and you looked at my father and you said, Ed, you know, I might not mind doing what you do instead of doing research. And I think my father kind of shrugged and said, well, that sounds fine with me. Let me go check it out with Charlie Haggard and Bill McGee and Art Davidson, whoever was in the clinic at the time. My father apparently goes in, and again, I'm paraphrasing, and has a quick conversation with with the other guys. And they, he walks out a few minutes later and says, well, Walter, you're hired. <laughs> Now you can correct the facts, <laughs> but that was always a story I was given. Is that well, the, that's pretty good. <laughs> it was about that casual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know uh, we never talked about price and what I what they were going to pay me. I just figured it'd be okay, <laughs> and uh, we started. And we've had a lot of fun. Had a whole lot of fun (laughs) together, yes. Right. That's the important part is a little bit of that fun. Now, Dr. Zen, along the way, I have heard time and again, you were never without a student with you. So you've had students and riders, and that was always important to you. Yeah, it was. uh, You know, it was always fun, depending on. Who they were, if you had somebody that wasn't fun, you usually ended up trying to wear them out. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so Tony, Tony Holmes was your rider, right? Yeah. And you, then you wound up going into business with Tony. How soon after Tony was your rider did you go into business with him? When he, he worked to work, when Tony left being my rider, he went to work with, with uh, Tim Thornton. Oh, yeah. And then when he left there, we started our little project. Your little project? Yeah. So tell our listeners about your little project. Well, Tony and I just started out with a couple of mares and went on from there. I'm looking at an Eclipse Award on your credenza there. What Can you tell us a little bit about that? Stevie Wonderboy? Stevie Wonderboy, yeah, that was quite an honor. Yeah, it was. He was a champion two-year-old. You had a great run of horses, though, with Tony. Yeah. Incredible. Really. Yeah. And standard breads, too. Yeah. 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 So yeah. You, you, you started out coming to Central Kentucky, going back. Yeah. Working in veterinary science department. And what area of research did you begin your your career here in Central Kentucky? Vaccinating horses. We were yeah. working for. Were you, which, were you working with, with Dr. Bronze, with Jack Bronze? Yeah. You, so you, were you working on the Pneumobor K project, the herpes no, virus? That was already done. Okay. And Jack and I, well, he was working on influenza. So you're working on influenza. Okay. Uh, and we already had the run of pretty well done. 
Okay. He, he did. And so the influenza, just to take a little tangent on that. It was your dad's relationship with Jack, the Dr. Bryan's, that kind of developed the influenza. The first vaccines? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they did the first vaccine and and uh, your Uncle Jack, yeah, mm-hmm. was, you know, he developed that vaccine with with Roger Dow. And you were working with the two of them when you came here yeah. in 63, 4, 5. Yeah. Okay. When, um, so when, where does the CEM stuff fit into all of that? 1978 yeah. was the outbreak. Yeah, that's when it came in, but. So CEM is, uh, stands for contagious equine metritis, and the causative organism is Taylorella equigenitalis. And I uh, was raised by Dr. Zent in this area, hearing um, the stories um, or the, the, the facts behind CEM transmission and the, and the importance of the observations of Dr. Zent and the other researchers at Gluck that helped determine the causative organism and how it's transmitted. transmitted. Um, and probably those observations really contributed to management of CM nationwide. Yeah. Nobody was thinking that it was important to clean up the stallions like we did and then You'd, uh, if you had an infected horse, uh, that would start another transmission. So you'd think you'd have everything done and cleaned up, and then you'd breed them out, you probably shouldn't, and started another outbreak. And it was a very trying time for everybody. Let's pause for just a minute to hear from our friends at Bimeda our Spirit of Haggard podcast sponsor. Bimeda might just be the largest animal health company you have never heard of until now. Bimeda Animal Health's equine products have been trusted by veterinarians and horse owners since the 1960s where our Irish roots began. Bimeda is one of the largest producers of dewormers for horses like Equimax, Bimectin, Duramectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes rely on polyglycan, a patented formula designed to replace lost or damaged synovial fluid, and Confidence X 1% pheromone gel that reduces and prevents equine stress, to name a few of our branded products. We encourage you to consult with your equine veterinarian before using any equine products for your horse. Also, please visit buymedaus.com to learn more about our full product offerings and where you can buy them. You have been a leader in so much innovation especially as it relates to theriogenology. Dr. Liu, you, you have alluded to this a couple of times, but talk about your experience and your development as a mentee of Dr. Zent. I remember when I first got here um, and he's, he approached me and uh, put his arm around me and said something along the lines of, I know you know what you're doing but let me show you this booking game. And 
for at least a whole season, we went and met every morning around, I don't know, 4.30 or 5. And we would start the day and then we would each go their own way. And that that was such a special time. Yeah, you know, it was, it was interesting. You don't think this is such a art here until you get somebody in here who's a good veterinarian but has never worked in this environment. And it's uh, a completely different... This book and mares is something that not a lot of people understand outside of this area. I know when I shadowed you as well, that was a great teaching ground, a great place to start out. And to your point, learning how to book mares and how to manage mares, um, you know, that was one thing that you taught me. But then also um, you and Mats Trotson, you know, talking about other innovations that you have been instrumental with were did early some of the early diagnostics or measures on the C-tup or the combined thickness of the uterus and placenta through a, a rectal examination. So if you can you kind of speak on that just a bit about um, ascending placentitis? Well, we kind of started using, well, we did use the ultrasound after we got the ultrasound and which is a whole nother story and kind of changed the whole game. You know, oftentimes, even in my own practice, I'll have multiple mares booked to the same horse in the same 36 hour time frame. Yeah. And again, going back to this booking game that you alluded to with, with Dr. Lou, um, there's a lot of juggling. You do it with even your own book of mares, but then you're thinking about the other people you're impacting. Yeah. You know, my actions would influence with Dr. Lou's horses, maybe if they can get exposure. And so, you know, the whole group is Haggards and other practices and practitioners. Everybody needs to really be in concert. But you guys were masters of that, and there weren't as many equine practitioners back in the day. No. It was talking uh-huh. about the work that you and Mott's did measuring the placentas, yeah. the serial studies that you did on that yeah. cohort of impeccably bred broodmares. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a lot of that research we still use today, those measurements. That, I mean, there were others involved, but I know here in Kentucky, you were one of the, the key researchers. Yeah, well, we, you know, we found out that that meant something for and uh, we uh, got following those moves closely, and you would uh, be very cognizant of the things that went on, and it, it got to be become more important to do that. We didn't think it was matter to help a lot when when I first started here. So it's become a valuable tool. I think, Christina. I don't know if you want to expand on it, but it's definitely been something that we use. It's become a standard of practice. You'd be so proud. I think you'd also think that we um, probably look too hard and over-treat, which I I hear your voice in my head every time I look at a horse. (laughs) So I I think there's so much truth. Maybe even 
just to go back even just a little bit further to what Christina's question was, prior to the ultrasound, you know, coming about in the 79 or 80 thereabouts, if you go back to your first decade plus of practice where you just were doing manual palpation and trying to synchronize the mares or line them up, book them, you know, learning how to palpate, everything was done manually. Yeah. And then as Christina alluded to, you worked closely again with the Gluck Center or at that time, Veterinary Science Department, developing the lights program with Dr. Loy and then with the programming mares with the progesterone and estradiol to synchronize them. Maybe if you could elaborate on that. Okay, well, again, your dad was a a big proponent of getting mares bred early and uh, just so they don't come before the 1st of January. (laughs) (laughs) So everything was put under lights uh, that I, uh, it's your dad, all your dad's clients and my clients uh, all had their mares under lights starting in uh, December 1st. Yeah. And if you might, can you explain for the uninitiated audience what it means to put a mare under lights? Kind of a neat trick, really. Well, if if you expose them to light in the early spring or late winter, uh, their ovaries think it's time to start cycling. And so the mares will come in heat not only earlier, but uh, better. Uh, mares are seasonally polyesterous animals. So when they would come in heat, Early in the year, their heat cycles wouldn't be very regular. They'd have to have a, a cycle and an ovulation before their ovaries got organized. So if it was just a la natural, it would probably be first time April before they would start to cycle properly. So by putting the mares under lights, their ovaries thought it was earlier than it was, or later than it was. And uh, so they'd cycle normally. If you started mares, if you just left mares alone, you wouldn't get good heat periods until March. But if you put them under lights so that they thought it was March when it was only February, then they would cycle normally and the heat would be more fertile. So when you first started 
practicing when you when you took that offer in the garage at Haggard's um, and started working for Haggard's. When would you all typically start breeding mares? If it was 1965 or 1966, would the sheds open in April or late March? No, they'd open in. We breed mares in late February, early March. You'd have some that were cycling. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we'd have we'd have some cycling. Your dad would anyway. <laughs> <laughs> would uh, and so you it, with with Doctor Loy, and you might be able to expand on who Doctor Loy was. But when he came about, you started using progesterone and estradiol to try to synchronize or mimic heat cycles, and therefore synchronize the mares. Yeah, we well, the mares had to be cycling to do that, and so. We put them under lights, and so they were having pretty good heat periods by first of February, and then uh, we'd use progesterone and estradiol to sh- shut their ovaries down, and it would it would kind of turn their ovaries off. And then when you took them off of that, they start to cycle. And if they already were exposed to the light so that they thought it was February or whatever, they'd uh, start to cycle like it was March. And uh, so then in order to help that, Along as far as the synchronization is concerned, we would give them estrogen and progesterone for 10 days, which would block their ovaries. Their ovaries would shut down. And this is all Dr. Lowy's work. And then when you took them off of that, they didn't have anything, any activity on their ovaries. So then they would start cycling and was pretty accurate how long it would take them to ovulate. Most of those bears would ovulate around nine or ten days. It's a lot of fun when you could get five or six mares going to the breeding shed at almost the same time. You you describe um, you and June um, having like standard bread or a sport horse that you wanted to breed and order semen on and yeah. how you used progesterone well, and estradiol. Yeah. And based on the first day of injections, you ordered semen like 19 or 20 days out because you were so comfortable with the, yeah, with the physiology way it was gonna, and the way it was done. Well, it was going to work. We Some of these horses that were particularly hard to get to were but were artificial insemination jobs. We call three weeks ahead of time and order the semen and would get a sarcastic comment sometimes, or a lot of times, from the shipper of the semen. It's kind of fun when you could call a guy up and say, 
that you wanted the salmon. And he said, you know, I told you a month ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked, still works very well. You use the money. I do. I do. I don't know how many bears you program, Christina, but. I, uh, I, I use it as a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a really useful tool in certain situations and I get great joy every time I pull it out of the arsenal because it makes me think of you. <laughs> well, something we started here. Bob Lois started it. Your dad was a big user of it. Well, you all kind of perfected it in the field, the application yeah. in the like 69, 70, 71. I think at that time, um, if I recall, Dr. Bob Hillman came down from Cornell yeah. to learn how to you know palpate pregnancies earlier because that's, again, predates ultrasound. And at that time, again, everything is manual palpation, not only follicular activity, but also pregnancy diagnosis. What was the earliest you all could diagnose a mare pregnant with with confidence? You have a mare that doesn't come back in the heat at 21 days, say, post-breeding. And then when could you, with a strong confidence, uh, say that this mare is pregnant? Well, that's, and when could you divine whether or not she had twins or, or a single pregnancy? Depends on whose hands you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> uh, if you're talking about your dad's hands, you could tell at 20 days if it was the right mare. You couldn't, if you took a, a uh, full heat old mare with a Sloppy uterus, you couldn't tell. But if it was a maiden, you could easily, pretty easily feel twins at 18, 19 days. Wow. But, you know, the mares can really screw you up because they strain or whatever they're. But it was a lot of fun. You talk about the mentorship, and I know you you came here working with the intention of doing research initially at, at UK, but then you morphed into a, a, a field practitioner that also continued that research path. You married up the lab with the field very well in your career, but you also, as Jody alluded to early on, it was important to you to mentor students like Dr. Christina Liu, Dr. Rhonda Rathgaber, myself, and many others. Can you expand on that a bit about that succession of sort of that intellectual capital that you've always been willing to share? Well, I mean, why wouldn't you? You know, it's it's, uh, uh, it's what this business is all about. And, you know, it seems like if you didn't take time to share with people, um, it would be, you know, you're not doing your profession the right thing. 
No, you've always been marvelous as far as, you know, if, if I had a sticky set of twins or something like that, you were always more than willing to go and help out a young veterinarian. And that was something you told me early on because you said, you know, somebody did it for you. It's important for you to do it for someone else. And and I think all, all of us here carried that onward. It, it was, that lesson was not lost. Good. And what about the best riders and students that you've had? What are, what makes them the best? Okay. Well, you know, you're, you're uh, uh, three of them are sitting right here, so <laughs> I got to be a little careful. <laughs> but uh, the best, the things that would spur me on to help the people would be if they were a interested and they weren't just doing it to get a paycheck, and they were in the, in the garage or wherever they were meeting you in the morning before you were, that was always a very good thing. (laughs) And people that we get done and uh, get back in the office and be cleaning up the car and one of the girls would come back with with another call and it was 7 o'clock at night and so you'd get in the car to go, and the, this person, whoever it was, would go with me intentionally, you know, that without me saying anything. They yeah. want to get in the car and go. And they've got to have that depth of interest to keep going. Because yeah. this, this business keeps going in the spring. Screw around a lot the rest of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a quick break to recognize our Spirit of Haggard podcast sponsor, Bimeda. Bimeda might be the biggest animal health company you've never heard of until now. Bimeda's products have been trusted by veterinarians and owners since the 1960s when our Irish roots began. Bimeda is one of the largest producers of dewormers like Equimax, Bimectin, and Exodus. World-renowned equine athletes also rely on polyglycan, a patented formula that replaces lost or damaged synovial fluid in Confidence X pheromone gel, which reduces and prevents equine stress. Consult your vet and visit buymedaus.com to see where to buy. So you've had some fun times in your truck. We talked earlier just about the lessons that are learned and the conversations that happen between farms. Yeah, how important is that time in the truck? When you got a a good rider who is thinking ahead and stuff, they'll spur an old brain on a little. Again, back to the theme of mentorship and kind of continuing that that teaching. You you always kept your hand in the research world yeah. to stay current. Well, that's, that was fun. Now, in addition to talking so much about mentorship, a lot of people comment, Dr. Zent, that you are very gifted at not only taking care of the horse, but being very good with the clients. Okay, well, <laughs> you have to. 
I don't know that I was so much better than anybody else with the client, other than that I've been around a long time. You know, it's interesting what you put in your, I don't know how to say it, but what's important to you and what isn't. And we, all of us, all of us people sit around here, put the client above our own time. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've all done the same thing, but I have a mare that I checked this morning. She bred yesterday, checked her this morning, and she had ovulated, and you knew the horse was trying to get three mares, trying to book three mares a day, and so you wanted to get this mare in, back in for double, and she was in Cynthiana, and you'd have to drive over there to Palpator to see whether you needed a breeder or not, because if you bred her, somebody else wouldn't get to get bred. And so you drive back to Cynthiana at 5 o'clock in the afternoon to palpate that mare. And your dad was a great one to drive to check a mare late in the day or early in the morning, 4 o'clock, go over and palpate her so they'd know whether to breed her or not. And... uh it's all working together, you know, we all, and you're kind of doing it because, well, two things. First of all, if you do that, then when you have a mare in the same situation, the people are inclined to do it for you. It, it is interesting what you're saying there, how we're all working separately, but really as a community. How many equine vets would you recollect there were in the mid-60s, roughly, in the central Kentucky area? 20. Wow. And how many broodmares would you have been palpating, would you have been managing in your practice at your peak before the ultrasound? Oh, 150 a day. The ultrasound screwed everything up. <laughs> Took you so long. Well, going back to Christina's question a while back, tell us how the ultrasound changed things, besides being able to tell pregnancy earlier, diagnose it earlier. Yeah, well, as far as when we kind of learned how to use it for the ovaries, you know, you kind of knew, thought you knew more what you were doing. And, you could tell double follicles and all that kind of, you know, and several other things. And the owners then wanted to use the ultrasound machine. You know, they, if you didn't, if you didn't, if I palpated a mare and she'd 
ovulate. Black and white ovulation. And I didn't put the ultrasound machine in. The farm manager thought they were cheated. Because <laughs> they couldn't see. It's not that you didn't need to see. They needed to see it. I know my managers have gotten pretty good at reading how big the vesicle is, <laughs> let alone that they're in full, but how big it is if it's behind the day or edema scores. Is, is that fluid? Yeah. I saw it. I saw it. Go back there. Yeah, I think I saw fluid and you missed it. <laughs> okay. I'm just driving. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, they get pretty good. And they think they're even better. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Can you talk about, there's one thing I wanted to hit on that Jody's often referenced in her former life as, you know, working for Zoetis, but with the number of vaccines that were developed with Ed Haggard's, and you talked about in your early days, you started with the influenza projects. Again, that was a lot of um, synergistic work between the lab scientists at, you know, the veterinary science department and then Gluck to develop influenza and going back further, rhinopneumonitis vaccine or pneumovor K. Then you had, and I never saw this, but I remember Dr. Timoney and you speaking about Salmonella abortus equi, yeah. which just kind of disappeared. Yeah, I never saw it either. Equine viral arteritis vaccine, which the Timonies or yeah. Peter Timoney developed it kind of kept in the freezer until 1984 when we had an outbreak. Yeah. The Clostridium vaccine or Botox, rotavirus vaccine with your dear friend, Dr. Powell, David Powell. I think that being the importance of all of the innovation that you've participated in and that collaboration between the University of Kentucky, the Gluck Equine Research Center, and you and your core team at Haggard, how much change and improvement for the horse has come from that? Well, I think there's a a lot of stuff. And some very visible and some not so visible. But I think one of the biggest things that happened to the equine industry in this area was Jack Bryan's and your dad's friendship because he had, you know, because they were brother-in-laws. They'd talk about stuff and Ed would come out with a conversation that he had for Jack and, and we'd talk about it in the car and then we'd and I, I think maybe the other thing that happened back then is we didn't, and I don't know what happens today, but we didn't charge anybody. We'd go out and vaccinate or bleed a whole farm of horses and wouldn't get paid a penny because we were doing it for the university Mm. and didn't even expect to get paid. And uh, 
I think some of that's gone. Now, I don't know whether it's all gone, but people aren't looking for places to help anymore as much as they were. And that's maybe nobody's fault. So what a story you have had as a veterinarian in central Kentucky. But I know that our listeners today also love to hear a little bit more about you. So as we sit here in your beautiful home, looking at your horses, tell us where you met your lovely wife, June, and how, much, how, how she stepped into this, this horse life. She was working on a farm holding tails. <laughs> and that's really how we got started. So you came through to palpate mares and she was holding tails. Yep. The rest is history. Yep. <laughs> About what year was that, Dr. Zent? Mid-60s. Okay. How many members were in your vet school class, graduates were in your vet 60s. school And how many were male and female? We had two girls. Okay. And what percentage would you think we're going into large animal back then? Well, I'd say there's probably five guys that were equine oriented, and then there was a lot of dairy people. Hmm. And uh, rest for small animals. Now I don't know what it is. More small animal. Yes. <laughs> yes. Still more small animal. It's about 1%. Yeah. That go into equine. Do you have any professors that you, that influenced you the most? And what was the, so I, I think about you telling me what he taught you many times and you, you'll probably have to correct the variation of it, but never let laboratory. Never test. let the laboratory screw up your clinical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean to you, Dr. Lou? Look at the horse. Yep. Look at the horse. Always look at the horse. And to take it one step further, probably first stand back and look at, your surroundings. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And then look at the horse and then proceed with your examination. That was nearly verbatim what he would give us in the notes. Yeah. That's mentorship. <laughs> That's mentorship. I love it. Yeah, he uh, he was a student's friend who great fun. if you got in trouble with administration or something, he's the guy that you went to to get jobs. <laughs> and Hillman some. Mm -hmm. What else from you, Dr. Lou? What lessons are stand out for you? Do you have a, a favorite funny moment with Dr. Zent or impactful? Um, many impactful. <laughs> um, you know, there's a few people in your professional career that you, whose voices that you hear, you know, you're looking at a horse and you just hear somebody's voice over your shoulder, uh, just saying something about 
you know, just a word of wisdom. Um, and I'm lucky that I've had two people like that. One is Dr. Zent, another is um, Pat Sertich from University of Pennsylvania. But, um, you know, you look at a horse and that little voice speaks to you and um, you just, it helps guide the way. Or you look at a horse and you're like, that is what they meant. <laughs> I finally figured it out. <laughs> yeah, just great joy and love. And You know, I think the great thing about large animal veterinary practice is that we have more opportunity to associate with our mentors than if you were a small animal practitioner or human practitioner. Because you're outside and you're, you've got a big animal to look at. We had a lot of fun. I think that that is part of it too. You had a lot of fun doing it. And I think you, like Christina said, hearing your voice in the background, I would corroborate that. What you just said that, you know, oftentimes I'll think reflect on those times that we had together. But then, also, you had a good time doing it. And I think yeah. that, that becomes infectious. You know, if you advertise well for your profession by, you know, showing the positive aspects of it, always staying stimulated because you want to stay current, which you did throughout your career, I think you, that becomes infectious with the younger generation. They see you're enjoying it. You know, no matter what stage you were at your career, you were always trying to do something new. And I think that that, I think that that gives a great impetus to somebody who's starting out in veterinary medicine to have an in, a mentor who's excited about it, no matter yeah. where they are in their career. And gracious with the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Generous. Mm-hmm. I do remember one funny story this time of year with you. <laughs> we were standing outside. The bar door, there the doors there. We'd gone through the first bar. Sun's finally coming up. It's a beautiful sunrise. Just gorgeous. About the first or second week of March. I said, golly, Walter, this is like a postcard. He said, don't get used to it. Daylight savings time this tomorrow morning. Let's get back to work. We'll be back in the dark. And I was like, oh, gosh. That used to piss me off. It's still, still pissing me off. Right? Yeah. I just remember that like it was yesterday. Come on. Time to get back to work. We're yeah. going back into the darkness. That's right. <laughs> Dr. Zent, is there anything you would do differently? I don't think I'm smart enough to do anything differently. <laughs> Been a pretty good ride. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Dr. Liu, final parting words for our listeners today. I only hope that I can do for others what Dr. Zen has done for me. Amen. Dr. Fallon? I would concur with what Dr. Liu said. We've been very fortunate to have the exposure to 
to Dr. Zent, to Walter, and you know, close family friend and professional friend, and also, you know, it it has a lot of sentimental value to have come up underneath him because of his work with my dad too. So, you passed on the baton very well. Thank you. That's important to me. I think there is no better representation of the spirit of Haggard. And that's what we have here today, without a doubt. So to our listeners, if this is the first episode, welcome. Please go back and listen to our previous episodes so you can get caught up with the spirit of Haggard. Thanks to our sponsor, Bymeda. And stay tuned for the next episode of The Spirit of Haggard. Thanks for tuning in to The Spirit of Haggard podcast today, sponsored by Bymeda. I'm your host, Jody Lynch Findlay, speaker and podcaster. You can connect with me at jodyspeakslife.com.